Uh, so preparing for a baby. What, 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 what do you do? What kind of things do you do when you're preparing? You're pregnant and you're ready. What, do you, what kind of things do you do? You buy nappies. Buy nappies. Yeah. Clothes. Clothes. Bed. Sort the bed out. You need a crib. Uh, 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 sorry? Uh, uh, you need to get ready for the bath. You need to, like, before it comes, though, you need to get all the oh, bath yeah. stuff. Probably get some bath toys, don't you? Yeah. Decide on a name. Decide on a name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Some people leave it a long time, don't they? You <laughs> um, want it nice, right? And there's like actually a biological thing in the pregnant mother um, where they sort out things called nesting. Nesting. They start preparing things and they get dead busy just before the baby comes. Some people start painting fences and doing weird stuff. Um, but it's inbuilt to us to prepare for a baby. But what about Ma- Mary's baby? Did you, if, if you picture, she doesn't have any of that. When she's meant to be preparing things and sorting the bedroom out and making sure she's, the family know what are ready for around her, she has to travel kilometres and kilometres, hundreds of kilometres south to get to Bethlehem. She's meant to be preparing for the baby and she's having to waddle all the way down. Maybe there was a donkey, we don't know. But she had a horrendous journey just before she gave birth. Um, she couldn't prepare anything. Probably all the stuff she did have prepared, she couldn't take half it with us, with her. You know, she brought lots of cloths and blankets. She had to leave a lot of them behind, probably. Travelling light. Imagine how physically uncomfortable she would. One key part of preparing for a baby is putting your feet up. On those last, you know, that last month where you're lugging around this massive stomach. You're going to put your feet up. Mary couldn't do that. Um, and then the baby starts coming and she's not even in a, in a proper room. She's probably in a stable or an outhouse or something. It's actually coming and she's like, there's nothing really. And Chelsea would be going mental. She was going mental because we might not have got the baby's room painted. <laughs> but she'd have been going, she'd have been spare because the baby's coming and she's in this state. So imagine her emotions. Imagine how stressed she would be. She probably had, and especially in these days... Giving birth was like, you had a lot of people, hands-on, family members, ready to go. Probably a lot of them weren't there. They were back in Galilee. And she didn't have those key... Maybe her mum wasn't there with her. You know, we, we, key people who might have been there weren't there. Maybe some came with. Maybe they had to register them in Bethlehem too, but we don't know. And then the baby's born. And where do you put it? A manger. A feeding trough. With a... Cows and pigs are eating out of. That's where you put a newborn baby. I think a mother would be very stressed. And the birth wasn't particularly special. If anything, it was, you know, the poor people's birth. It was the people that were, you know, on the edge of society who were probably going to be, you know, that child might not live in these days. They're born in a stable, not in a home. And I bet Mary's thought, she'd been prophesied all these great things by the angel... And in these circumstances, is God really in this? If God's ordaining this, why is this happening like this? And even as we read the story, we're thinking this is really odd. Really odd. The son of God's been born, the saviour of the world. And yet Mary's in this horrible state. The baby's in this horrible state. What is going on? It's not this cute and cuddly warm idea that we see on the nativity card. It's actually quite a horrible situation. 
And then the shepherds arrived. Mary's thinking all these things and the shepherds walk in the door. And they've just, they tell, they come in and say, we've seen the angels. We've had a vision of angels and they've appeared in the sky and they've sung glory to God in the highest. And they said the saviour was born, the Messiah was going to be born, the Lord was going to be born. And they told us to look out for something. Mary thinks, what, 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 what did they tell you to look out for? That the baby would be in a trough. That's the thing that signifies that this is the saviour of the world. It's the trough. The trough is the key thing that the, the angels in the, in the story that was just read, that's what the angels tell them to look out for. Look for the baby in a manger, in a trough. That's the sign that the saviour of the world is here. What? That's mental. But for Mary, with all the stress and the worry and that question, is God really in this? I bet she was totally reassured at that point. God is saying, no, 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 no. I have chosen, I have ordained that God the Son will be born in a dirty, smelly manger. This is not my plans failing, but my plans coming together. This horrendous beginning is actually my perfect plan. And he almost has to affirm that to everybody present because it seems mental. And so in this story, we see the mighty hand of God of the God of the universe pulling the strings of human history. So we get real, if you've read the book of Esther, there's, it's this story that God's not mentioning, but clearly God is pulling the strings of the biggest empire at the time, of King Xerxes and all these things. God is in control of history. And here it's a similar idea. Um, I've got my phone. Right. So um, there's a Micah verse, which I was meant to read out the end before. Um, before we started eating, I was too keen to eat, that was the problem. Um, Micah. Chapter 3, I think. Uh, two seconds, I'll just find it. I have, I have some more food in. <laughs> For order serves as well. Ah. Five, not chapter three. So, in Micah, hundreds of years before, um, it had been said, Bethlehem, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Some super old guy from, from history is going to be born in Bethlehem. And so, but God has ordained that Mary should give birth to him who lives in Galilee. So how, you, as you read that first story, you're probably thinking, I know that Bethlehem prophecy. I know the Saviour's to be born there. How's this going to work? She's miles away. And God, to make this happen, gets the most powerful person in the world, Caesar Augustus, to ordain a census so that that family has to travel to Bethlehem. So he pulls the strings to have the Son of God born according to prophecy. <clears throat> and so that really shows his power over the earthly beings, his power to ordain things. And then it also in the passage is his power over the heavenly beings. We have the angels burst on the scene to the shepherds, one at first, telling him about the Saviour born. And then the sky fills with angels and they sing glory to God. In the highest, or say it. 
There's no question of God's power in the story. He's over the heavenly beings, he's over the earthly beings, and he's all ordaining it. And what's the point of all this? What, what, what is he ordaining with all this power? That God the Son would be born in a trough in Bethlehem, which is weird. So this story really is quite a powerful juxtaposition. I wonder how many people know what juxtaposition means. I won't get a show of hands. Maybe not many. But juxtaposition is like two things put next to each other that are really different and you can see the contrast. So it'd be like taking the Mona Lisa out of the Louvre in Paris and sticking it on like the Berlin Wall next to some graffiti. You see this brilliant masterpiece, old, old, and that art next to the art of rebellion and Berlin Wall and whatever all that means. And the contrast of the two next to each other gets highlighted. Or maybe um, you have like a male power lifter, you know, the big fat guys who lift up the heavyweights in the Olympics next to like uh, the female rhythm gymnast. Yeah, do you point to me, Dan, the big fat? Yeah, I meant next to you. Oh, next to me, yeah, <laughs> that would work too. But you can see two athletes at the top of their level, but they can see the contrast in body types and differences. So that's a juxtaposition. And our story is a massive juxtaposition. Um, and it all highlights the contrast. So the angels, imagine the scene lighting up the sky. And it's not just pretty angels and nice. It's scary angels. They're frightened. It's earth-rippingly terrifying. The heavenly realm is mixing with the earthly realm. Shatteringly loud voices, no doubt. Otherworldliness. Think of alien encounters on films. This is happening. And like an organ in a cathedral, they're praising God. Blasting it out. And then the angels leave. And you have this quick change and it's dark again. And the shepherds are left, just shepherds. They go, ooh, we better see what they were on about. And they walk over um, and they find the baby in the manger. And it's this incredible momentous occasion that the Messiah is being born. It is the biggest thing in the world. It's the angels ripping apart the heavens and singing to God. And then we're suddenly in a stable with a mother who's probably still bleeding, and a baby in a trough. It's huge juxtaposition. You couldn't, you couldn't get two more contrasting things right next to each other in one story. And um, why, is, why has he done this? Why has Luke done this in the story? Why has God done this? It's because he's highlighting the contrast, like with the Louvre and the Berlin, uh, sorry, the Mona Lisa and the Berlin Wall. He's highlighting how different these things are. He's highlight, highlighting the importance of what's happening and the method that he's doing it, the strange method that he's doing, he's highlighting that by having the two things next to each other. Um, and it's mental. The sign of the saviour being born into the world is that God himself was born in a trough. You expect thunder piercing through the clouds, smoke and earthquakes and mountains ripping in two. That's how it often was in the other faiths, isn't it? When something massive happens, Hercules comes to... There's big... Big things happening. But the sign, verse 12, was a baby born to poor parents, not even in a house, placed in a feeding trough. Okay, so why? Last week we looked at that big hype, didn't we? Growing and growing and growing throughout the whole Bible of this saviour coming, the serpent crushers coming. And it's all happening, all the hype's been building. And now the small boy's been born in a trough to insignificant parents. What's going on? Why do this? Why is, why is this happening? Uh, 
2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 and others tell us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich in heaven with God, eternal joy, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, him in the manger with Mary and Joseph, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The Lord Jesus gave up the heavenly glories to make us rich, to bring us salvation. It doesn't matter how many, you know this, iPhones, houses, friends, when we die, we have nothing left. So your family have to sort through your stuff, don't they? It all goes, half, half it goes in the bin, at least. When we die, we have nothing. But Jesus, realising this, though he was rich in all things, for our sake he became poor. God is highlighting the poverty of this situation, the poorness of God, the, the fragile state he's taking. And he does this so that we might become rich. The God of eternal power and love and perfection stepped out from heaven and was born to make us rich while we were still sinners. That song we sang, to fulfill the law and prophets, to a virgin came the word, from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. That is exactly what we have, to a cradle in the dirt, from a throne of endless glory. And it was for us to make us rich while we were still sinners. And it's not rich money-wise, wealth-wise, but spiritual blessings, which are last past death. They're worth so much more. We have salvation because of this baby in a trough. We have salvation and we don't deserve it. We're being saved. We have relationship with God. He had that relationship and he sacrificed some of it to bring it to us. We have acquittal from all our sins. We're in the courtroom. We deserve to be judged and yet the case is thrown out and we are forgiven. We have peace that we don't deserve. We, we cause chaos and yet we are given peace. We have hope for future after death and we deserve nothing. We have joy in this life now, even though it's horrible and painful. We have the spirit himself. God gives us himself because that boy was born in a trough. And that's why Jesus was born and put in a manger for us. God took on poverty to make us rich, to become our saviour. And so we must be like the shepherds. Um, in verse 20, what do they do? They go away praising God for what they'd seen. So our response is realise the spiritual blessings that that birth recognises. So that's what we must, that's our like application here. It should be a regular part of our prayer life, of our daily life. It's just dwelling on different spiritual blessings that we've received through Christ being born. You know, Lord, thank you that I've been acquitted from my sins. Thank you that I have the spirit in me. Thank you that you've brought me into a church that I don't deserve to be in. But, and you're heading it up and you're leading us. Thank you for, you know, you could just spend your prayer time focusing one or two of these things. And that's what the shepherds did. They were praising God for what they've seen. And let it be an expression of your thanks. It's important discipline in, in prayer life, in life, to think these things. When you're on a bus, you can think of these things. Oh, Lord, from your poverty, I am rich. Um, 
And we also must be like Mary. I don't know if you heard in the, in the reading. She's contrasted with everyone else. Everyone else is getting dead excited by the angel, by the shepherds sharing the story and going, oh, we just seen angels. They said this would happen. It's happening. God is here and saving the world's here. And Mary says, but Mary treasured up these things and meditated on these things and stored it up in her heart, I think some versions say. And so she almost takes a different approach, which is to treasure and meditate on God's wonderful ways. I think that's a really important thing. We just need to even, I think we don't do this, but just thinking about the narrative, thinking about the story of Christmas and praying and thinking through what happened. God in heaven, born to a virgin, the prophecies fulfilled. And just treasuring it, meditating on it. Meditating on it means like thinking about it, dwelling on it and like going over it and maybe learning scriptures about it and not necessarily like, it's not praising God straight away, which is what the shepherds did, but letting it sit in your soul. Um, so I think that's, we should be like the shepherds and like Mary in our lives in response to, to everything. Can I pray?